Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to get into the locked The Second Passenger by Basil Copper Mr Reginald Braintree sat quite still in the corner of the fusty third-class compartment with his feet up on the opposite seat and a copy of the Times spread-eagled on his lap. The carriage was quite empty and had been since he left Charing Cross, so the liberty was pardonable. Outside, the blurred scenery of wood and stream whirled effortlessly by, the white-grey smoke from the engine fogging the windows and restricting the vision. The noise of the wheels went monotonously on and on, as though some tireless hand were rhythmically beating time in some fantastic computation. Dusk was closing in and the carriage lights shed their yellow glare onto the wan face of Mr Braintree, making his usually pale features look macabre. They heightened the sombre effect of his never-genial eyes, distorting them into black pits, from which his pupils gleamed, greenishly and balefully. His mouth was a mere slit in the twilight, the shadow underneath making it resemble a letterbox, which, metaphorically speaking, it was. He was dressed in a faded suit of salt-and-pepper broadcloth. His stout brown shoes were scratched and worn, but they didn't look old. His hat was battered, yet it did not seem antique. In short, Mr Braintree was a successful man who could afford to dress well, yet did not choose to, a thing not entirely unknown among a certain class of businessmen. His paper, stirred by some motion of the train, slipped unheeded to the floor, and he didn't bother to pick it up. His figure slumped at the sudden motion when the carriage rounded a bend, and then he automatically recovered himself as it regained the straight. In a way, the railway was something like the course of Mr Braintree's own career. It ploughed remorselessly on, unable to leave its designated route, and when at length it came to a hill, instead of going round, it smashed an impetuous path through. There were times when Mr Braintree lapsed into compassion, but they were few for he did not care to make a cult of weakness, as he called it. His first day as an office boy in a stockbroking firm in Cheapside many years before had taught him the efficacy of force, a lesson he had never forgotten, and which ever since he had used to determine the course of his life. The occasion was common enough, yet it left an everlasting impression. 
It appeared that it was the duty of a certain Samuel Briggs, also a species of Clark, to fill the inkwells and run the errands in addition to his other multifarious duties. However, being the type of person who will never do a thing if he can get someone else to do it for him, he somewhat naturally chose the moment of the newcomer's arrival to assert his authority. Unfortunately, from his point of view, the other clerks were big and determined men, not at all disposed to run his errands for him, but the entry of the diminutive brain tree altered the picture completely. His first commissions were executed willingly enough and without suspicion, but later, one of the other employees having let something drop, young Braintree began to see the true situation, and not having a vacuum where his brain should be, sought to escape from this unwelcome and decidedly irksome yoke. The first hint of mutiny was met with black looks and a clenching of fists, which, although subduing Braintree for a time, did not permanently dampen his resolution to be rid of his bondage. The next time the dapper young gentleman told him to empty the waste paper baskets and be quick about it, this spate of rhetoric being accompanied by a well-propelled kick in the rear, the youngster's temper flared. Impetuously turning, he flung the contents of the inkwell he was carrying full into the sneering, weakly handsome face of the clerk before him. The next moments were somewhat hazy, for he was picked up violently, shaken like a rat, and with a vicious backhanded slap in the face hurled unceremoniously downstairs. As he dazedly came to rest in the hallway, he heard the malicious laughter of his contemporaries floating down towards him, and the sound was like gall to his already bitter soul. Spitting curses through the mask of blood that covered his features, he swore then and there to get even with his tormentor if it took him all his life. This resolve was interrupted by the appearance of the bedraggled form of Mr. Samuel Briggs at the head of the stairway, wiping some of the ink off his mottled countenance and transferring it to a convenient towel. But although defeated physically, Braintree had gained an enormous moral victory over his opponent, for the confidence of the bully had been shaken, and from then on his manner was less assured. The younger boy received fewer commissions and they gradually stopped, but his dark, brooding spirit still rankled over the day of his degradation, and the promise he had compacted with himself remained as implacable as ever. As he grew older, his feelings became more subdued and subtle, and it would have needed a very shrewd and worldly person to see that the two clerks, who worked so amicably together, were in reality deadly enemies each determined to usurp the other in the estimation of their employer should the opportunity present itself. If it were Braintree who arrived early one morning, filled the inkwells, tidied the office and waded through arrears of work, then one could be sure that it was Briggs who sat up half the night sweating over a mountain of paper. Was it not Briggs who cycled five miles through the pouring rain to old Mr. Staining's house with some important documents that had been overlooked? And yet, had not Braintree been just as meritorious in returning from a fortnight's holiday on his first day away in order to tell Mr. Staining of an important business speculation which he had learned en route? Who ran for the doctor when Mrs. Staining was ill? Briggs, of course. And who summoned the courage to risk serious injury by rescuing the old man's daughter from the wheels of a bus? Braintree, naturally. 
Finally, what cloak of generosity masked the actions of two unscrupulous men who eventually jointly subscribed the money needed to put the firm on its feet again? As sure as the earth revolves around the sun, it was Briggs and Braintree. But that their actions were motivated by quixotic impulses beyond imagination. Yet, later, it did not seem that they had been risking anything at all. For when their employer's anxiety with regard to the future of his organisation was allayed, he naturally turned to the men who had made this reversal possible. The result was a junior partnership for both of them, an opportunity which neither of them neglected. From that time onwards their careers were set. With the passing of the years, while increasing in prosperity, they never forgot for a single moment that they were enemies. And though no one could have divined it, the germs of hatred were breeding and multiplying within their respective brains. Things might have gone on like this forever, except for one fact. Mr. Staining was growing old, his business prospering, and with two capable junior partners to all appearances contentedly running things, he saw no reason why he should not sit back and put the reins unreservedly into their hands. So he retired, and sealed their fates by so doing. Without the old man's restraining influence, the two men immediately fell apart again, and although no one would have seen any outward difference between them, their consuming passions were more openly manifest than usual. Their morning greeting was elaborately polite, almost to the verge of irony. While now and again, the mask slipping, cutting remarks would whip about the office, to the bewilderment of those who heard them. Everyone began to suspect that something was wrong, and the clerks on the same stools which had accommodated their employers years before began to whisper and gossip among themselves. The business too began to suffer. Each of the partners, in his eagerness to outdo the other, eventually deprived himself of the benefits of their transactions. With the curb of Mr. Staining's presence acting as a restraint to their impatient spirits, they were safe. Without him, they were lost. The affair swiftly progressed to an open rift, culminating in Braintree's discovery of Briggs's misdemeanours. The whole truth of the matter was never really discovered. Some said women, some said horses were the reason, but the upshot of it was that Briggs had been spending above even his considerable income. Neither had families to tie them down in any way, for both men were bachelors, and thus there were no domestic questions. For almost a year considerable sums of money had been taken by Briggs, and only covered by dexterous and skilful handling of the books. Perhaps it was a malicious and selfish ego that enjoyed and exulted in the fact of cheating a hated partner out of the money, or a pressing and desperate need, the step being taken only after long consideration. The truth will possibly never be known. Discovery could not be postponed indefinitely. The misdemeanour uncovered some time. The denouement occurred on a cold March morning, when the rime sparkled on pavement and railing, and fog hung like a thick yellow cloak over the city. Braintree was in an unusually foul temper even for him, and strode through the outer office, looking neither right nor left, responding with a grunt to the chorus of salutations from the staff. Briggs, a tall, sallow man with pockmarked cheeks, was already seated at his desk sipping a measure of whisky 
from the cap of a silver hip flask to take the nip off the air, as he explained it. It would be more to the point if you attended more closely to the firm's affairs instead of indulging in that debasing practice, Braintree sneered, for he was a strict teetotaler. The other, however, said nothing, which was unusual for him, and the younger man commented on it. Briggs's eyes were beginning to burn angrily, and he half slewed on his seat, his right hand methodically screwing the cap of his flask. He twisted it savagely, as though it were the thick head of his enemy. He opened his mouth to spit out a reply, when the door was pushed back by the head clerk. He looked agitated and white. Uh, it's about the account, sir, he jerked hesitantly. Braintree excused himself and went off irritably. If there was one thing he disliked, it was any interruption to the smooth routine of the office. He was away a long time, and Briggs sat, staring moodily at the swirling fog outside the window. He made no attempt to deal with the jumble of documents on the desk before him. He was still sitting there when Braintree came back. He glanced coldly at his partner before crossing to his desk. He took something from a drawer and then relocked it. I shall be some time, he told Briggs in a hostile voice. The door clicked to behind him. Briggs took another swig from the flask and restoppered it. He toyed idly with a bunch of keys, his hands suddenly sweaty. Perhaps he did not move into the outer office because he was already acquainted with what would be found there. The clock ticked away while he listened with straining ears. There was the confused murmur of voices mingled with the jingling of keys and rustling of papers. The whispered consultations were still going on when Briggs left for lunch. They went on throughout the afternoon, and eventually night fell again. Instead of leaving for his home as he usually did, Briggs remained behind at his desk. The fog pressed sullenly against the window. He heard the outer office door close behind the last of the clerks, waited for the heavy footfall of his partner. It was nearly seven o'clock before the door of the inner office opened again. The stocky form of the younger partner appeared. His manner was extremely mild when he spoke, yet the curious pose of his body suggested the coiling of a steel spring. Briggs had not moved. He gazed abstractedly across the office, as though trying to discern whether the Chinaman on the commercial calendar was grimacing or smiling. He felt like doing neither. He lifted his face, his forehead slightly shiny, and coughed, a nervous, startled cough, which sounded incongruous in the pregnant stillness. Well, it was Braintree who spoke. He stood by the back of the other's chair, his thick knuckles gleaming white where he clenched the woodwork. You know, the other answered dully. You found out. Braintree nodded. He kept remarkable control. His voice was dry and smooth, as though a life's ambition had been achieved. But twenty thousand brigs. He looked curiously at the still figure of his partner. How did you expect to get away with it? Briggs turned away from Braintree with a convulsive movement. He put his head in his hands. I wouldn't expect you to understand, he said. What are you going to do? Do? said Braintree. He looked at his watch. I've already done it. I've sent Simmons round with a note to the station. The police should be here in twenty minutes. A bit premature, aren't you? Briggs sneered. Red stood out in vivid patches on his cheeks and his breathing was becoming laboured. I don't think so, said Braintree smoothly. 
It is criminal matter, after all. Such a huge sum of money, and your personal accounts tally with the discrepancy. He started back as Briggs got up with a sudden movement. You're enjoying this, aren't you? said Briggs thickly. Braintree declined to answer. He went to the window and watched the swirling fog. He toyed nervously with a heavy office ruler in his hand. I suppose it's no good asking you for an hour's grace, said Briggs heavily. Braintree shook his head. He had a sardonic smile on his lips. None at all, he said. You should have thought of this before. I must advise you against attempting to leave. I should be forced to prevent it. He hefted the massive metal-edged ruler in his hand uncertainly. Indeed, he was a somewhat incongruous figure and obviously ill-fitted for the self-appointed task. Briggs stared incredulously at him for a moment, then he gave a short, barking laugh. I'm off, he said, to blazes with you and your police. He strode impetuously forward, thrusting Braintree aside. The partner fell against the window. He felt a sharp pain as his hand broke the glass. A sudden shock stung him into action. Briggs was at the door when Braintree reached him. The two men began a silent struggle. Then Braintree was thrown aside. He fell against the desk this time and barked his shin. This second unexpected pain sent a spurt of anger through him. Galvanised into action, he struck at Briggs again and again with the heavy ruler. Briggs gave a hoarse cry. The big man turned. Braintree saw blood on his face, the eyes filmy and horrified. He felt sick. The older man fell a sprawler with a crash. His head caught the edge of the desk with a horrifying crack. He lay still. Braintree bent over him, searched for the steady pump of the heart, failed to find it. His own heart stood still. Then another sound sent the adrenaline flooding through his own system. He started dragging the heavy body of Briggs along the floor towards the cupboard as heavy footsteps sounded on the stair. It was nearly eleven before Mr. Braintree reached the Essex marshes. It had been a long and tiring drive through East London, and the little Morris was not behaving well. Braintree believed it might be the effect of the damp weather and one defective plug. He had not liked it at all when the vehicle had stalled completely at the traffic lights in Walthamstow. But now he was clear of the more populous areas, and he breathed more easily, the car positively humming along. The moon was up, and its pallid light cast shadows across the humped form of Briggs on the back seat, covered by thick layers of motoring rugs. It had been a miracle that Briggs had driven his own car in from Surrey that day, Braintree reflected. Once he had got rid of the police by telling them that Briggs had left, it had been fairly simple to bring the car to the seldom-used side alley and take the body down the back stair. Fairly simple, but how tiring, Braintree thought. Now he had the perfect answer to the problem. With Briggs's disappearance, he had only to drive his car back to the nearest tube and abandon it. When it was found, it would merely add substance to the circumstance that Briggs had been unable to face the music and had fled. Braintree would have to stay in town tonight. That was the only flaw in his plan. By the time he got back to central London, his last train from Charing Cross would have gone, and he had no desire to wait for the early morning paper train in this weather. He must be careful, that was all. He had no luggage. He would simply register under another name, carefully choosing a small family hotel away from the city centre, and tell him the truth. 
that he'd missed his train. There must be many businessmen who were in a similar predicament every evening. The more Braintree thought about it on his long, foggy drive, the more he liked it. He was free of the villages at last, and making for a spot he remembered from years before, unless it had been built up since then. He took a rutted side road, the Morris protesting at the surface, and drove carefully along it. The fog had lifted with his clearing the city, and he knew where he was. When he had driven as far as he could go, he left the car. The next hour, dragging Briggs's heavy form through the undergrowth, was the most tiring he had ever known. When his feet began to squelch in mud, he looked down. His prints were already beginning to fill with water. It was nearly time. He got his hands under Briggs's armpits and dragged him the last few yards to the top of the bank. He was sweating as he gave the final push. The body rocked, sagged, and then started to slide down the steep slope. The moon gilded the dead face as it slid to a halt. Green scum parted, viscous mud sucked at the corpse. It began to sink, slowly, bubbles of marsh gas bursting in foul, scummy pustules on the surface of the swamp. Mr. Braintree waited for twenty minutes until the entire corpse had been consumed. The last thing to go was one of Briggs's hands. It seemed to wave a valediction at Braintree as the fingers slowly disappeared beneath the surface. Braintree shivered. It was growing cold again. Or oh, the effect of his exercise was wearing off. He waited a few minutes more, and finally the bubbles stopped coming to the top. The green scum of the surface resumed its interrupted sway. Mr. Braintree made his way heavily back to the road. No one would ever find Briggs now. That swamp was bottomless, he'd heard in years gone by. What it took, it kept. He looked at his watch. It was already nearly 1 a.m. It seemed like a long drive back towards the city. The train roared on through the night, and still Mr. Braintree sat comfortably sprawled with his feet up and his antique hat poised beside him. Presently there came the hiss of brakes, and the carriage shuddered and was still. Came the burst of escaping steam and a nervous little pulse beat somewhere under the floorboards. Figures went by in the corridor, and, after glancing at the uninviting figure of the stockbroker, their owners passed on. Carriage doors were slamming, and the hoarse, inarticulate cry of a porter drifted upwind. Seven Oaks! Seven Oaks! A railway employee came down the carriages, slamming the doors. He caught sight of Mr. Braintree's recumbent form and slid back the door of the compartment, annoyance on his face. This train doesn't go any farther, sir. Mr. Braintree's body sagged a sprawl at an awkward angle. The porter bent over him, hesitated. His nostrils were assailed by a loathsome stench. He saw then, in the dim radiance of the carriage lighting, a patch of damp green slime on the floor. It glimmered wetly, and the stench seemed to come from this. Fighting his nerves, the porter seized Mr. Braintree by the shoulder. The dead face fell forward, and the man was conscious of the slime on the features, something like moss clustered round the nostrils, and a thin driblet shuddered from the corner of the mouth. A shadow fell across the carriage, and the figure of a tall, burly man passed in the corridor. 
The porter gave a hoarse shout and stumbled away from the corpse of Braintree. Just a minute, sir, he called after the tall figure. There's been an accident. On the platform, the big man marched forward under the lamps without stopping. At every footprint, green slime seemed to spring up on the surface of the platform. The porter cursed as he almost sprawled on the muck. There was that disgusting smell again. The big man went on. The porter increased his pace. Stop him, he bawled at a group of railwaymen who were gossiping at one end of the platform. They looked up curiously as the form of the big man went steadily up the steps of the bridge. He didn't seem to be hurrying, but the porter was unable to gain on him. He shouted again, and this time the group was stirred into action. Its members ran up the stairs, searching for the tall figure. One of them turned as the porter came up. What was it? What was it? he said, his eyes wide with fear. There were patches of green slime on the steps of the bridge. A putrefying stench came to them down the wind. But the tall, hurrying figure of the big man was never seen again. Everybody dies, don't they? So that was um, The Second Passenger by Basil Copper. I've done a Basil Copper before. I did The Spider before. The, um, there's been a long-standing request for me to do The Janiss Janissaries of a Million by, and I've got a copy of it by Basil Copper, but it's longish. So, so maybe if I get more time, I will do it. Um, now, uh, yeah, so Green Slime, Stinking Green Slime. The last story, I think, on the podcast was The Red Lodge. Uh, and that had stinking green slime in it again. So I'm wondering whether this is going to be a theme. I didn't pick this story because of its uh, green slime. I had no particular rhyme or reason. I got a The Giant Book of Ghost Stories, 50 Masterpieces of the Supernatural Preface by Christopher Lee, edited by the famous Richard Dolby. He was good at picking good ghost stories. This was published in 1991. So Richard Dolby was clearly still um, active then. Big anthologist, him and his wife, Mary, throughout the 80s. So Basil Copper, let me say something about Basil. Basil Copper was born on February 5th, 1924 in London and passed away on April the 3rd, 2013. He was an English writer who initially pursued a career in journalism and newspaper editing before trans transitioning to full-time authorship, as it says, in 1970. Beyond these literary pursuits, Copper cultivated diverse interests, including swimming, gardening, travel sailing and collecting historic films. Notably, he established Tunbridge Wells Vintage Film Society and actively participated in esteemed film organisations in London. Basil Copper spent a significant portion of his life in Seven Oaks, Kent, we get to mention the story, and he was survived by his wife Annie, who he married in 1960. Basil's, uh, Basil began his writing with his inaugural short uh, story, The Curse, published in when he was aged 14 only. His professionally published debut, The Spider, which I've done, made um, the fifth pan book of horror stories in 1964. His novels, um, he did a series with an occult um, uh, geezer, uh, act, uh, you know, I'm just get lost for words there, an occult um, investigator called Mike Faraday, started with The Dark Mirror in 1966. Widely recognised for his series of Solar Pond stories, paying homage to Sherlock Holmes, Copper's association with editor August Derleth resulted in publications through Arkham House. Among his notable works are Necropolis, 1980, a crossover between Victorian Gothic and detective fiction, and The Great White Space, 1975, a 
a novel influenced by Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft. Copper's macabre tales, including The Academy of Pain and Beyond the Reef, underscored his mastery in horror fiction. His significant contribution earned him a Locus Award nomination in 1981, and in 2019, Basil Copper, A Life in Books, a biographical work, uh, received the British Fantasy Award for Best Nonfiction. There you go. So, uh, I, I will do more of him. He's a transition. He's You can feel he's sort of uh, mid-century, isn't he? He's after... He's sort of after the Lovecraftian pulp thing, and he's and he's he melds into. You can feel some Ramsey Campbell in this. Um, I don't mean in necessarily the style of writing. I mean just the the uh, suburban, ordinary British settings. Now, the, clearly, this is written in a time with London pea supers with, with ink wells and stuff. So he's writing about a time uh, probably in the twenties, thirties, potentially forties. Um, before the war, I would say that's the, that is the London we're seeing there, and that's what we all do, don't we? We write very often about our memories of our youth. We don't write about the world as it is; we write about the world as we remember it, as we are historical creatures travelling through time, or does time travel through us? Mm, that's a deep one. But certainly, you know, um, we are not outside, and we write things. We're not outside the process of history. That sounds very profound, but actually doesn't really mean very much. So, um, you know, just means we get old, don't we? And then we we get older. That's all it means. But it sounds kind of like it's like something that you at a literary festival. I should say I'm booked to go to the UK Ghost Story Festival, which is in Derby in February. So I'm going to be staying there, and I'm looking forward to um, a couple of things. One of the things I'm looking forward to is, um, and this is an online one. I'd like to see her in person is Elizabeth Hand. Now, Elizabeth Hand's an American horror writer. Well, she's more than a horror writer, but she, she does that. And I like her because she's called Hand, and that's my my biological family name, if you like. You know, I was, what Walker's an adopted name of mine. Funnily enough, I was doing one of my E, uh, and so it wasn't near where I am, but I came across a, a person called Hand, and there's not, he was only 32. And uh, so most of the Hands I meet are, in fact, uh, relatives. So it would have been nice to... And say to Elizabeth, it's not a common name. It narrows down to an area. It's an Irish name. Comes from Monaghan, South Monaghan, um, and Cavan, and round there. So that part of Northeast uh, Ireland there. And um, yeah, so there we are. So Elizabeth Hand, she did a fantastic book, which I love. I know I'm digressing, but I love this book called Wilding Hall, which was a kind of a, a visit. It was like a 1970s. Um, Acid folk band in the day, you know, the Steel Ice Span Fairport Convention days, and John Martin and people like this. When they, and so it's called Wilding Hall, and they take over this, um, they're in this manor house in the English countryside. This is what they did, isn't it? I mean, I think I'm guess Floyd did it, and people like this as well. And um, Mike Oldfield did it. I remember watching a really interesting biography of um, Mike Oldfield and um, Tubular Bells and things, and then the Omadorn and things that he was doing like that. And so this was a common thing to do, and she wrote a story about kind of folky horror type things going back into the 70s when this band and strange things happened. It's a great book. It's a really great book. So I, I'm looking forward to um, seeing her online, but I'm actually going to be in person in Derby for a, a bunch of other things. If you're there, say hello. Um, if you're at the Ghost Story Festival, I'll be, I'm, I'm quite shy in person. You might not believe that. I don't like to introduce myself to people, but I probably will be wearing either a t-shirt, a ghost, uh, classic ghost story podcast t-shirt, or a badge, a pin, lapel pin, if you're American. But you're probably not going to be if you're in Derby, so a badge. 
Um, so yeah, do come up and I'm looking forward to that. It's my kind of first foray in the new year. We're in January now. It's rained pretty solidly. Um, it's, it's not been a fantastic, yeah, anyway, that's enough of my woes, but I hope you're all well. Um, my doggies are all well. Um, Sheila persuaded me, my recording den is at the top of the house and she persuaded me it was a terrible clutter and it needed, um, uh, rejigged and to create a better space. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And eventually, uh, over the Christmas period, we did it. And, um, it's, it's actually much better. It really is. Although I was very, very resistant to the idea, moved the desk around. Um, I've got a lot more space. I've, I, you know, and because of that, I've kind of, I've got piles of books to go out. I was reading something about Umberto Eco, you know, and he had a massive library. He had a bigger house than me, to be fair. And it was full of books. And he says something like, don't be ashamed of the books you buy that you'll never read because uh, they're not just a commodity. I, I don't know. And I was reading um, an article by Slavoj Žižek, the, uh, I think he's Slovakian, no, Slovenian, the Slovenian uh, Marxist philosopher. He's a very funny guy. And he talks about how uh, we can, you know, the, the other, we can have the books read for us by this mysterious other. Um, I can't really explain it, but it's, it was very funny at the time. I don't think he meant, I think he partly meant it to be funny. But um, yeah, so I've got lots of books, which I hope I will read. I'm hoping to have more time now to sit down in my lovely new room with my hi-fi and uh, just sit and listen to music and read one day a week. As we're getting older, we need to do You need to nurture your soul, you know. It's not all about working. Um, and sometimes you need to take time to do things that either are not tasks and chores. Even though it, those are important, it's important to do your work. Work is really important in my view. But um, so is, is um, leisure. And I don't mean doom scrolling on um, Twitter as X as it is now, or Facebook, which seem relatively worthless uses of your time. But certainly reading books, listening to music, pet petting your dogs, going for walks, talking to your friends, cooking, um, eating, all those human friends and family, all those human things, they're really worthwhile. So uh, make space for those. I, I don't know how I became an expert on all of this. Just by actually um, living a while, I suppose. And, and looking at my own mistakes, I've always worked too much. I've always done too much and uh, always had to be busy and doing things. And so I'm kind of, when I'm telling you this, I'm kind of trying to persuade myself as well that this is the thing. You know, I'm great as a, you know, a lot of people who work in the health profession. And I'm obviously retiring now, so my, that identity is fading. But I, it's been part of me for a long time. So we give people lots of advice. Don't smoke, don't, don't eat loads of sugar. I do say that. Don't, um, don't drink too much alcohol. Don't take loads of drugs. Um, uh, get some exercise, get some sleep. And then we don't necessarily do it. Um, so I'm, Sheila says to me, you know, we're different in many ways. And I think by talking. So sometimes I don't know what I'm thinking until it comes out my mouth. And it comes out my mouth and it's in the air somewhere. And then I go, ah, that's what it is. So I can conceptualize it better if I can get it out of my wife, my wife, my mouth. So that's what I'm doing now. And unfortunately, you're listening to it. But of course, remember that you don't have to. And look, many of you love this stuff, which is, it's your fault, you see. You've encouraged me. And all those people who, all those few people, those, those few people who presumably haven't got this far unless they're utter masochists, who don't like it, um, they can blame you. 
because you made me do it. That's it. Another thing you need to do is take responsibility for yourself. Okay. All right. Anyway, peace and love, everybody. I hope you are all well. The world turns. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's still winter, but soon we, the little snowdrops will be showing their heads and the days will be getting longer. And the, I've got to say something about the dark. It's not wholly bad, you know. I've been, because uh, of various circumstances, walking through the city at night and it's not a big city and it's quiet at night and you walk past people's houses in the dark and then um, walking the dogs walk slightly because it's not a big city we're on the outskirts of it so we can walk into the as the countryside begins and the dark there is amazing you know and the dark is oh it's, you're drenched in darkness it's so it's like a blanket around you um, and so, what was it Coleridge who said, I may paraphrase this wrongly, but to thee all seasons shall be sweet. And I think, uh, at the moment, I think that's true. I find joy in all of them, the darkness of the winter and the cold of the winter, the promise of the spring, spring the flowers, the, the heat and the warmth and the openness of summer, and then the closing in the autumn and the colours and the mists of of autumn, you know, so to thee all seasons shall be sweet. I hope they are to you. I'm looking for my closing line here. I've got to do the intonation right. I hope they are to you. So good night. Good night, dear friends. Good night. I hope you're all well. Peace and love. I've already said that. Look out for green slime, though.